I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan B to the Network Capital podcast. Um, in these series of conversations, we host interesting people who've built their category of one, and Jonathan is definitely one such person. Jonathan, I wrote this article for Harvard Business Review called Category of One, where essentially I'm talking about uh, Rene Girard without talking about him explicitly. How we should escape competition and really do something with our work lives uh, that distinguish us, that suits, uh, puts us in a path which gives us autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I make a philosophical argument uh, to it. I'd love to learn a bit more about uh, your career and specifically what got you interested in philosophy. Yeah, so maybe just give you a brief uh, you know, overview. So I was born in Beijing and I was raised between China and Vancouver uh, as a kid. Uh, I, got start, I got trained as almost any kid in, in Beijing uh, in, in the 2000s. Um, you, you were sort of, you had to be very uh, trained in Olympiad math um, to sort of basically test your way up the, uh, the, the sort of primary school, middle school, high school system. And that's what I was uh, sort of interested in as well. Um, and I was a big gamer at the time as well. It was a huge, uh, I spent probably a few thousand too many hours uh, on World of Warcraft. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th those two interests of both gaming as well as uh, computer science, uh, sorry, mathematics naturally led me uh, to computer science. And so I started hmm. coding when I was about 15, 16. I uh, moved back to Canada. Um, and, you know, I, I did high school there. Most of my time I spent focusing on either on math competitions or, or coding. Uh, and then I, I went to Columbia to take a degree in computer science. And as you may know, one of the, uh, I, I think, perverse incentives these days for elite uh, uh, college computer science majors is that there is a lot of prestige and social pressure to see who can drop out first uh, and, and raise right. around and build a company. And, you know, me and my friends have called it like the Zuckerberg complex. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, felt, I felt prey to, to such a complex. And uh, I, I dropped out my freshman spring to, to raise a small friends and family to, to run a startup that, uh, you know, I co-founded it back in high school. Uh, and it ended up, you know, crashing and burning. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that, you know, I tried my best. I really wanted to do it. And despite all, all the odds, you know, the market just didn't, didn't go to our favor. Um, it was more the exact opposite. It was more, I didn't really want to do the startup. Um, and I, I felt like I had to do the startup. Uh, and so it was this type of failure, which I, which I was never met before, that fundamentally I failed myself instead of me failing to live up or, or meet some kind of external goal uh, that really had me wondering because it made me realize that the problem was sort of internal, if you will. Uh, and, and that's when I got into philosophy. Uh, and philosophy um, and still is to a great degree became a, a way for me to self-psychoanalyze, uh, if you will. Uh, and the two sort of philosophies that uh, I was most attracted to, uh, or, or three rather, was, was the philosophy of Rene Girard, uh, mediated no small part by, by Peter Thiel, as, as any, any kid in, in tech would, uh, would probably tell you these days. Um, the second one is uh, you know, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist phenomenology specifically, studied with, with some uh, great scholars in the Tibetan tradition at Columbia. Uh, and the last one is you know, continental social theory. And it mostly centered around these, you know, three lineages of 
uh, social theorists that focused on the importance of recognition. One in the Scottish moral tradition of Hume and Smith, one in the um, a French tradition, you know, most notably with Rousseau, and one in the German tradition, uh, sort of most, most notably with, with Hegel. Uh, and, and these three uh, theories uh, all really spoke to me. Um, and, and I think they were actually talking about very, very similar things, even though it might not uh, be apparent uh, from the beginning. And so, uh, you know, I finished my CS degree quite early, um, about my second year, and I just decided to go full steam ahead uh, in philosophy, uh, best decision of my life. And, um, you know, maybe this is, might be interesting to your listeners, fundamentally, I understand your project is about how to, how to build a career. Um, uh, it, it was actually when I stopped focusing on building the career uh, that I actually mm. gained some of the, the greatest advantages when I was just pursuing my curiosity. Um, and, you know, Steve Jobs gave a famous Stanford uh, graduation speech where, where he said that you can only connect the dots looking back. Uh, and that, that was definitely true. That was definitely true for me, where through my interest in philosophy, I found my way uh, to, to incubating companies for a gentleman by the name of Joe Lonsdale out of VC firm ABC um, as a junior. And then um, I, I essentially, uh, I've been on the founding team of, of one of the new fintechs that, that, have, uh, that have come out of that incubator. Uh, and I've been building that for the last uh, two years, uh, essentially. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe one, one more point and I'll, I'll shut up because I've been talking a lot. Uh, I was deciding right when I was graduating between uh, doing a philosophy PhD, uh, being a, a Buddhist monk or building a startup company um, and in that descending order of interest. Um, and, and, you know, Joe kind of convinced me that building the company was, was the best move earlier on in life. I think I still want to do the, the other two things, but it's, it's a bit more about staging. But, but I think this actually, uh, the reason I bring this up is that I think this is going to tie into your category of one idea. Because one of the reasons that my engagement with philosophy was so free, I think, as an undergrad, was because my identity was not with philosophy at all. That, uh, you know, I was, you know, somewhat established uh, already, at least compared to people my age, in tech. Right. And, and so as a result, I felt a license to pursue philosophy. And I had a similar realization uh, looking ahead in the academy. I thought that, you know, if my all my adult identity is tied into being a philosopher, um, that I would actually cease doing philosophy for its own sake. And I would start doing it to, to, to sort of gain social rewards, right? Publishing papers, getting a prestigious uh, professorship, making tenure. And then, and then, you know, the, the one-liner I tell my friends, half a joke, is, is I like contemplation too much to make out of it a career. And so in some sense, what I'm trying to imitate in my adult life is what made uh, my engagement with philosophy so freeing uh, as, a, as a teenager in college, which is I, I want to establish myself in the world first. Uh, you know, I, I want to I conquer in Gaul first before going back to Rome and, uh, and, and <laughs> contemplating. And the reason is because I think that will... Uh, enable me to really engage with, with the ideas that, that I find interesting and not trying to uh, game some kind of social system. Uh, and, and in many ways, my engagement with all three of these ideas are very, very suboptimal, at, at least ex ante uh, in the academy, right? Right now, the academy is heavily analytical dominated. Uh, you know, continental theory is, uh, there's only a few, few pockets that, that focus on it. Fortunately, Columbia is one of them. Uh, Buddhist theory and, 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 you know, is, is, is even more further afield. 
and then Girard, no one, no one takes him seriously at all, uh, at, at least in philosophy. Uh, or and no one even, it's not that people even don't take him seriously. No one even talks about Girard at all. Uh, and yeah. so, and so if, if I, had I gone with a career mindset um, into philosophy, I would not have the, the freedom to, to engage with ideas and, and produce the, the, you know, granted very, very minimal work that I produce now, but, but, but still, yeah, so I'll, I'll pause there. This is fascinating. I want to discuss uh, or unpack what you've said, but I want to ask two questions before we get to that. One, how was your conversation with your parents who've perhaps never seen you fail in high school, uh, seen you excel in Olympiads and get the prestigious scholarship to university, et cetera? Were they supportive of your uh, meandering in philosophy and becoming yeah. a monk? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think I uh, overplayed my hand, so to speak. A better way to understand them is that they'd never seen me really succeed until high school. <laughs> and I, I was always, as a kid, especially in China, right, it's, it's like a gladiatorial arena for, for academics, even in very young, you wake up at eight, you go home at four, I think it's much better now, but, and then you go to math, math training camp, right? So in that environment, again, it, it was because of, it was external motivators that I just wasn't engaged at all. Like, I, you know, I, I did the motions, I made sure I didn't fail. I was like maybe 75th percentile and among all students, but there was, it was by no means that my parents had a track record of success. So if anything, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, blip, the, the, the change for them was not me dropping out to be a monk, but it was me succeeding for somewhat two periods of two years in life of getting into a good school and making it to the Olympiad. And so, you know, I, I actually think that I have the best parents uh, possible because they have the uh, they, they, in, in terms of how much they dedicate to their child, it, it's very much an Asian sort of full-on dedication. But in terms of how much they expect from me, it's very much like a, a lot of a lot of Westerners, where they they expect very little <laughs> from me. Uh, so I, I don't know, you know, what what good karma I, I must have done in my previous lives, but th th there's there was no pressure at all. Um, and even today, That's wonderful. When, when I tell them, you know, eventually I want to go into do a PhD, they're like, "Yeah, man, like." You, 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 like uh, you, you, you clearly you love that and we're very supportive of you to do that and, and they're not r rich either right so it's not like they have a boatload of money and the money i'm making is making a difference to them but still you know they, they give me full freedom so can't be more thankful for that awesome but in your head i'm sure you realized early on that you were you were sharp you were interested in computer science you were doing well math uh, you got um, you went to vancouver then to to new york excelling all along your first brush with failure was with the Zuckerberg complex, right? When you perhaps did not make your first company succeed so much. It, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Maybe one way to phrase it, you're, you're right. I, I always you know, thought, uh, you know, warranted or not, that I was quite sharp, even when I was doing very poorly in, in China or, or you know, doing quite mediocre. Uh, and, and the reason was because I know like, you know, I'm, I'm just not trying, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm giving it 10% and you're giving it 60%. And of course you're gonna, you're gonna get, you know, 1% more, more, more marks than me in the, in the, in the test. Um, so even though I was failing, I, I was very comfortable with that failure because I didn't care about it. And I, I knew that, you know, I could easily push the, uh, push, push my foot on the, on, on the gas, so to speak. Um, the challenge with the Zuckerberg complex and why that failure, so, so I was, I was quite familiar with failure. And, and another failure <laughs> is uh, actually me looking for an internship uh, in Canada. Uh, and I'm quite a stubborn person. So I literally emailed like 50 people, like cold emailing. And I got rejected literally like everywhere. And then, then I 
I did one unpaid internship in, uh, in, in a gaming company back in Beijing. So, I, you know, I, I've been extremely, uh, uh, failure rather than success has, has been what, what I'm more <laughs> uh, used to and maybe even comfortable in. But, but there was something different uh, in quality and kind with that Zuckerberg uh, complex failure of dropping out into a company. Because every other failure was, you know, me being aligned to the outside world and either because I'm not trying hard enough or, uh, you know, for very valid reasons, like you're trying to get a software engineering internship as a, as a high schooler. Um, the, 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 and, and that is very different in kind than fundamentally you deceiving yourself that, you know, I want to build a company, making similar promises to people you care about. Uh, and then not even trying uh, at all, or, or like fooling yourself into, into the, that you're building a company, like the, the, the kind of failure there uh, and, and the path of resistance was very different. And, and that's why it was so, it was so shocking to me uh, because like I, I realized that I could be living life for someone else. And that fundamentally, this is how most people live their lives. Uh, and maybe a bit too strong, but I, but I think that's right, especially in the elite college crowd. So 100%. So now let's come to um, Rene Girard. How did that happen to you? Of course, you might have heard Peter Thiel talk about it, um, or you would have read about it in philosophy, but he's not really taken super seriously in all walks of life. Uh, in Oxford, for example, I've not heard a single discussion about him in, in, uh, in, in various circles that I've yeah. hung out in. So talk to me about... Um, yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I had a, one, one of my best friends, he ended up being my roommate. He's still one of my uh, closest friends, was uh, read Things Hidden cover to cover in high school. Uh, and he was, he was like a physics Olympiad kid. And, uh, and you know, and, and we, we just loved talking about philosophy uh, in one of our freshman years, even before either of us knew what philosophy really was. Uh, and then when we stumbled to philosophy, we were like, people can do this for like, for a living. And like, <laughs> like this is a serious thing. And so he, he was really my Virgil uh, uh, and, and led me down, um, let me down Gerard. And uh, the, the first time is <laughs> quite emblematic of my personality of just trying to go all in in the beginning. Uh, I actually got exposed to Gerard by reading things hidden cover to cover. Um, and and, and I, uh, it took me, I think about, uh, so I think it's like a 400 page book and, and I was moving at an hour per two pages kind of spiel snails crawl mm. right because gerard i think he begins things hidden like there's no no um no concessions are made for the reader so, so he doesn't try he to jumps around from idea to, to idea exactly yeah and he's referencing all of like oedipus and sartre and hegel and, and freud which i had no exposure to and so that was a really transformative experience in fact um i published a uh, a series of book notes on on, on things hidden which ended up being like 50 pages long. Uh, and, 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 you know, the book is only 400. So uh, we can, maybe we can talk about that later about the process of reading books. But uh, anyways, so, so uh, I had a not too gentle introduction to Gerard. And the only thing that made it more gentle and much more uh, interesting was that my best friend and I were just talking about, uh, talking about it every day. Uh, and what really spoke to me about Gerard is, and also with Buddhism and the recognition theorist, is it showed me how external uh, we are as, 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 as individuals, um, and especially in the, in the realm of desire. And just to give your, your listeners who might not, not be too familiar with Gerard, uh, I think an overview and the, the core insight is that there's really two species of, of desire for humans. On one hand, there's physical desire, and that's desire aimed at experience, a desire aimed at what an object can provide in itself, 
and the other is metaphysical desire. And this is aimed at everything that is other than the experience of the object. So it's aimed at what the object says about you. And you know, one, one example that I give is, you know, clearly uh, when you see people pursuing sex, there's people who pursue it for different reasons. Some people pursue it out of physical desire, desire for experience. And in that it would be, you know, pursuing it for pleasure or intimacy. Um, but clearly some other people are pursuing it uh, for metaphysical desire, for identity as well. And what they would be after there is what having sex with a certain type of person says about them, right? And this is the psychology of the Don Juan or the Coquette, where they see their uh, you know, sexual prowess as, as somewhat core and bolstering of their identity. And this sort of extends through all domains. You, know, you can choose a career because of you liking the work versus um, what, what the work says about you. And going to Oxford, as you know, this is the common, I think, dilemma and tension for a lot of people in elite schools today. Um, and, and it was that divide, it was that drawing out that implication and all the social, historical, eschatological consequences of, of metaphysical desire that really drew me into Girard. Uh, and the reason is because my fundamental failure of dropping out and doing Zuckerberg complex was perfectly explained by this sort of bifurcation, right? I didn't have a desire for the activity in itself and for me, it was all about what that, who that activity was associated with. Uh, these yeah. entrepreneurs that I've, that I've idolized since a kid, being a kid. Uh, and so that was, the, I think, the, one of the core insights of Girardian theory, certainly the core insight where all the other sort of important insights are built upon. Uh, and, and that I just found endlessly fascinating. And yeah, I, I continued pursuing Girard. Um, and I found a great affinity with him. Uh, when I started reading the Buddhists as well as the, the continental uh, recognition theorists as well. And you've done a really good job of explaining it, putting it out there. Uh, of course, you've done really well in tech and investing, but uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on Network Capital was largely because Girard is important for careers and for millennials in general, because we're constantly trying to signal status. We're constantly trying to imitate the desire. We constantly take... Uh, uh, selfies with uh, with our friends, with nice places we go to because we want to signal to the world that we, we live a certain life. And all of this comes at a cost. And I think, Jonathan, what you've been able to do, uh, and I hope that this podcast will help people do, is to understand mimesis a bit more when it comes to careers. Could you unpack that from your experience, perhaps telling us what you did after the tech startup? because this uh, Girardian clarity didn't come to you instantly, did it? No, it, it did not. Um, in fact, I actually tried to do a very similar thing. My, so that, this was, I think, 2018. I went back to Columbia and immediately um, I wanted to drop out and do a, a crypto startup that two years later ended up failing. And the only thing that prevented me was me not having a visa because I'm a Canadian. <laughs> and so thank God that that happened. And so it was, a, it was kind of a blocker really there. Um, and you know, this is actually what Gerard says about metaphysical desire as well. For metaphysical desire is a desire to be, to exist in great measure. That's a very abstract conception. And so it's a desire that really needs to be made determinate by models around us. Right. And, and in different historical, and even in the same historical circumstance, in a different social environment, metaphysical desire will be uh, directed at different things. If you grew up, as I did, idolizing the entrepreneurs of the world, then you know, maybe it's building a, a unicorn. Uh, you know, if you grew up in a scholarly community, maybe it's writing an important treatise. 
if you grew up in a media entertainment, maybe it's creating a, you know, uh, sort of a album uh, that is sort of popular. Um, and so one consequence of, of metaphysical desire is that when a certain pursuit frustrates you, and this frustration can go both ways, right? You can either be frustrated because you're led down the wrong path, you don't have the motivation and you fail, or, and this is just as common, you can succeed in getting it and then realize that it's not satisfactory. And in some sense, that's what Columbia was like for me. That was the other type of failure. It was getting into an Ivy League that I thought I always wanted. And then instead of feeling this eternal joy that I expected, it was a relief. And, and that was it. It was like a two-day high. And, you know, the, the problem with metaphysical desire is because is, is when you achieve or fail to achieve one of the objects aimed at by metaphysical desire, you immediately try to feel your, your lack. You immediately try to exist in great measure, not by examining this desire itself, but this desire immediately latches on to another object. And for me, that was, uh, that was trying to build a crypto company. Um, and so... It was only after failing like this multiple, multiple times. It was very painful. I, I broke down in tears in our frat row for, in, in one of these occasions. Um, that it, it, was, it was a combination of that great failure as well as my understanding and increased understanding of Gerard as well as Buddhism that let me really turn the, uh, the telescope inwards and realize that you know, fundamentally it's, a, it's an internal thing that I need to resolve here. Like it's nothing to do with, with all these things that, that, I'm, that I'm chasing. Um, I, I would also like to share with you another area of perversion that Gerard predicts, right? So for Gerard, you shouldn't be thinking about mimesis as only pulling you towards a model. The way you think you should, should be thinking about mimesis is that, um, and this is a very Hegelian ideal as, as, as well and quite common in philosophy, that our relationships with objects are always mediated by people, right? And in, in, in the uh, positive case, not positive as in good, but the positive as in a similar direction, you know, mimetic desire operates as in I see someone I want to be like, and then, and then I like the objects that they're associated with. Hmm. But there's also a negative space and species of mimesis as well. And the logic of this goes exactly the inverse as the positive phase. The logic goes, you know, um, I, I don't want to be someone, um, or I, I want to be someone I can't. And there I, therefore, I have to renounce them. And therefore, I have to reject all the things that they like. And I, I think this is the psychology of, of resentment, right? Um, and in my own life, um, after I, I sort of cor corrected in the opposite direction, where I said, you know, you know I was looking at friends who dropped out at the same time as me who were building successful companies, right? Mm. And obviously, they had what I had, but I couldn't achieve that. And so to preserve my being, if you will, if we're speaking in you know, quite simplistic terms, to preserve my self-conception, I had to renounce what they were doing, the entire enterprise and the entire value system associated with it. You know, building companies is stupid. You know, be, being a worldly person is, is full of vanity. And while all these statements may be true, the reason I was uttering them was not because they were true, but because they sort of protected myself, right? And in fact, you know, we had a, a couple of friends um, uh, back in college who, uh, who were very successful in crypto earlier on. And almost everyone in our, crypt, uh, in our friend group felt the need to renounce cryptocurrencies, right? Um, because they just couldn't compete in that same domain. So you know, this is a scam. And, and most people obviously lost uh, fantastic investment opportunities because of that. And so for me, uh, a similar thing happened, not with crypto, but with 
world building, uh, you know, worldly activity at large. Um, I went to a Tibetan monastery, uh, you know, went all in in philosophy, completely ne neglected tech for, for a few years. And this wasn't, again, um, that direction was not inauthentic, but the degree to which I did that and the degree to which I ignored the world certainly was. And the so curiosity was legitimate, you would say, but you really wanted to prove a point that even when it comes to renouncing the world, you can actually build your category of one, be the best, do your thing. Precisely, precisely. And, you know, then um, this actually happens, I think, um, when people make their career decisions as well. W one thing that I'm very cognizant of these days is when I feel like I'm disliking an activity or an object that I'm doing, and when it comes to work, because, you know, we're interested in, in careers here, you really have to ask yourself, like, why you, you dislike it, right? And I think there could be three reasons, loosely speaking. One is the actually the activity you, you don't like. One is um, bio biophysical reasons, right? You didn't get a good night's sleep. That affects you a tremendous mm -hmm. amount. And the last is social reasons. You don't, it's not that you don't like it. It's that you're, you're not excelling in it. Um, and conversely, you know, the, the, the way that I, I try to understand what I, what I really want to do, my authentic desires, is by almost subtracting an overlay, right? It's like investing where there's the alpha and the beta, mm. and, and, and you need to subtract the beta to see what the alpha truly is. And I'll give you an example. So I had a friend who, who was very similar to me, he was debating between working uh, and, and philosophy. And, uh, you know, they, they were getting all kinds of recognition, social rewards in, in, in company building, right? You know, news articles written about them and all this stuff. And they were getting none of that in philosophy. They were just reading by themselves at night. Um, and they still love this activity more. And obviously what, what, what Gerard tells us is, you know, the, the, there's more like social rewards here, but still you like this thing more where you're receiving no social rewards. And, and that's how you can remove the beta to see, oh, you know, th this really is my sort of authentic desire, right? Because if the case was converse, then, then you wouldn't be so sure, right? If you were getting a lot of recognition in philosophy and no mm. recognition or, or, or sort of negative, uh, sort of you were being disrespected at work and you like philosophy more, then it's really hard for you to know which one is the authentic desire because that's where <laughs> social, social uh, forces are pushing you. But if it's the reverse and you still like the activity more, uh, then, then I think we can be quite confident, uh, at least in those two domains, which one you, you prefer. Um, and so... Yeah, I hope this is all helpful. I know we're jumping around quite, quite no, a bit. No, this is super helpful. It's um, Gerard, so we have to jump around. Uh, yeah, Gerard's exactly. and careers and all of that. And uh, um, it's really helpful. Yeah, and so uh, th that's one of the, the, the ways that, um, you know, understanding Gerard and I, I think uh, human nature uh, a bit better has really helped me make much, much better decisions. Um, and we can talk about actually how to structure one's life given this sort of uh, you know, social, uh, how, how, how mimetic we are, but I'll, I'll pause there if you have any questions. So how mimetic are we? Um, Is there anything original about, say, millennials and Gen Zs today? I'm not talking about, you know, the exceptions, but as a, as a norm, if there is one. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer this in quite an unsatisfying way. Uh, the way I like to understand Gerard, because obviously he focuses on the social, the mimetic, the spirited part of, of human nature a lot, is that I think we really have to counterbalance that. And, and I like to interpret Gerard as really describing one part of 
Plato's tripart tripartition, Plato's tripartite soul, right? And as a little brush up to the listeners who uh, may not have read Plato, or it's been a long time, you know, Plato thought about the soul, and you know, if you don't like the word soul, you just think loosely psychology as consisting of three parts, um, each with their own ends as well as their own means. Um, there's the appetitive part of the soul, appetite, and that's aimed at you know, sex and food and shelter, you know, all the animal instincts that we have. And then there's the, the rational part, and that's aimed at truth. So co contemplative joy is an end in itself, and knowledge is not merely uh, in service of, of, of you know, pursuing appetite or getting more goods. Um, and the last part of the soul is really the spirited social part of the soul. And this is aimed at glory, you know, recognition, esteem. And I, I like to interpret Gerard as not trying to give a, a fully comprehensive psychology of man, um, but as describing the logic of this uh, most illogical and the rationality of this most irrational part of the soul, which is the spirited part of the soul. And so when you ask that question, how mimetic or how social spirited are we? Um, I think it really depends not only on the individual, but also in the circumstance they're in, right? Let me give you an example. Gerard uh, clearly does think that reason can operate uh, on a social scale, right? If, if it's a sober transaction, you know, I'm buying a very unsexy infrastructure company from you. Clearly, I can you know, do a discounted cash flow and make a reason-led argument uh, to make a decision. But there are in other situations where really spirit takes over, right? And, and here you can think of you know, mass protests, uh, maybe the recent American politics and, and its elections. Um, and so it really depends on the social environments that you're in, that which part of the soul is, is sort of dominant. Now, a challenging uh, twist that Gerard would say here is that probably when reason is needed the most, it is available the least. And Gerard articulates this insight as a critique of Hobbes. Uh, Hobbes quite famously uh, thought that in, in a war of all against all, this is Gerard's reading, by the way, I don't think it's right, but this is Gerard's reading, in a war of all against all, you know, uh, society could be formed by all the people who are at each other, uh, other's throats coming together to form a social contract, right? Uh, a, a realization and an understanding that we'd all really be better off if there was a sovereign body governing uh, us and we weren't at each other's throats. Gerard's critique, uh, again, I, I, I think he misread Hobbes, but anyways, Gerard's critique is that, you know, it's precisely in the battle of all against all that we cannot form social contracts, right? right. Think about it like this, even when you're slightly mad at your friend who you know is, you know, is good for you and maybe didn't mean it, it's not reason that is driving you, right? It's really, really spirit, you know, it's really maybe it's a desire for vengeance. However, however, you know, we don't want to admit that. And I think the same is true on the social scale as well. Like, do you really think that in the peak of the, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, protests that people could have rationally come down on the negotiating table or at the height of the French Revolution when heads were rolling, that people could really come down and reason can take the reins and Gerard, you know, confidently, I think, and I think he's right here, answers no. And, and there's in mm. social domains and scenarios where spirit uh, uh, really guides us. And, and so, yeah, I hope, I, hope, I hope that answers your question. It does. Whose desire do we mimic usually? Is it the most powerful person? Is it the most beautiful person? Is it yeah. somebody else? I, uh, Gerard actually does not give an overview here, but I actually try to answer this question for Gerard. Uh, and and you, can, you can read the full you know, analytical uh, uh, sort of argument on, on, on one of the manuscripts that I released. But to make it simple, I think 
we are much more susceptible, susceptible um, to mimesis uh, at a younger age. And so through the people that we've looked up to at, at a younger age, and probably these are our parents, um, but also our, our close friends um, and maybe a, an old, older sibling, we gain a understanding of the world where some people have more being and some people have less being. Uh, and, and, and this is completely, almost completely arbitrary, right? You, if you grew up in a Marxist household, you might think the capitalist is the lowest of them all. And mm. you know, if I grew up with an industrial parent, it, it might be the reverse. So from a young age, I think certain values and types of person are instilled in us. Uh, and, and the idea is whoever those people esteem or recognize, um, you know, we, we too would also gain recognition. So, 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 you know, to answer your question very succinctly, whoever we esteem, whoever they esteem, that, that, that is the sort of uh, map where, where we tend to imitate. So to give you an example, um, if, you know, I don't like bodybuilding at all, um, but, and I have all, all good friends who are, uh, you know, again, not bodybuilders, let's say they're all philosophers but they really got into Mishima, right? Or, 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 hmm. or a philosopher who, who's really into the aesthetics of the body. Um, then, then I too may start imitating those ideals more because I already esteem sort of my friends, so to speak. Um, whereas, you know, if, uh, you know, growing up, I, I, I thought, you know, academics were, were impotent and useless. Uh, and then there was a bunch of academics around me and they all wanted to be bodybuilders. Uh, then, you know, that, that, that probably has a very little effect, if not zero or, or even negative effect. Um, so it's, it's whomever we esteem, whomever they esteem. It's like a chain of esteem with the first, uh, first vectors uh, drawn out in, in early childhood. So definite parallels to social networks, the way they are designed. Uh, I'm pretty sure um, you've studied how contextual desire is as well. I, I recently read this essay by Paul Graham, like people who are into startups and venture capital may have heard of him. Uh, he's the co-founder of Y Combinator. He says that every city whispers something to you. I yes. think New York well whispers, uh, get rich, LA whispers, get famous, uh, something to that effect. And I do think that uh, there are mimetic angles to it. I would love your comments on it. Yeah. Uh... I, 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 you know, I, I think we, we also uh, are more mimetic to people that we just gain exposure to, uh, right? And, and that's not independent of this sort of web of esteem that I just described, um, but, but there's, there's probably some, some kind of overlay, right? Or, or, or maybe another way to say it is you hang out with, with people long enough and you're integrated into a city, you, you mm. will start to, you know, esteem them to, to some degree. And so uh, it, it, it really flows from that, that, uh, you know, whoever you, you surround yourself with and what city you choose will really start, you know, changing your, your, uh, your, 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 your core desires and your, and your ideals there. So, so I think it naturally just flows from what we just discussed. Yeah. I wrote this essay, another one in uh, HBR on envy. And I essentially talked about we, envy is hyper-local. We envy people like us. We envy people who are somewhat relatable to us. Uh, is that true for desire as well? Have you noticed that the careers we desire, the people we look up to uh, are somewhat like us, come from similar social networks or ethnic backgrounds, or is there something uniting um, this whole envy war or this mimesis game that's going on? 
Yeah, I, I think Gerard would say that uh, desire traffics more readily amongst the equal, amongst people mm -hmm. who are similar. And by equality here, although this is related, I don't mean exactly the sort of political economy, equality that we've mm. come to know, we've come to know, but uh, fundamental sameness. Um, I, I think we can tend to conceive ourselves in a certain domains as same or, or different in essence from people. Let me give you an example. Um, if I'm a freshman and a sophomore gets a really prestigious internship, I can reason that we are fundamentally different uh, people uh, in this domain because they're sophomore and they got a year on me. Uh, and however, if a freshman gets that, and I, I can't find another readily available excuse, like you know the, the, their dad was the head of the company, uh, then then envy, as you pointed out, uh, traffics much more readily amongst uh, amongst people. And I think uh, it, it's, it goes the same with desire. In fact, one of the reasons that Gerard thinks we're heading into an apocalyptic era is because we are fundamentally equal now. Uh, and obviously equality for Gerard is ultimately a great thing. It's, it's something engendered by Christianity, Gerard is a Christian, but it has disastrous worldly consequences. Um, that once we removed barriers between people, once everyone thinks each other as equal in stock, um, that's when desires are gonna uh, proliferate amongst everyone. It's gonna converge uh, and, and envy is gonna run rampant. You know, I, I was at the Met Cloisters yesterday uh, and, and there was a tour guide uh, and she was picking out lavender flowers. Uh, and, and, you know, there was about 50 people around her and she wants, she, she smells this lavender and she says, it feels, it smells very nice. And she wants to pass it to people to smell it. And she says, you know, I know this is unfair, but here, let me give it to you first. Um, and so the, the idea being, you know, she wished that she could just give 50 to, to, to everyone. And that is a, you know, uniquely modern concept, right? That, 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 that you would feel injustice, that you know, these people got the lambda instead of me. And this is a trite example, but let me give you a slightly more significant one. Uh, I, I thought, you know, a lot of my Christian friends tell me that there's really two reactions um, to, to hearing uh, someone gaining some kind of revelation from God, modern mm -hmm. reactions. One reaction is there's something wrong with them, right? They're a bit cuckoo, and maybe this is where it comes from a more you know, atheistic uh, or religious <laughs> person. And the other is that there's something wrong with me. Why aren't I getting revelations and prophecies from God? Now, of course, as we know, uh, Christianity in this domain is highly uh, uh, inegalitarian, right? The, the, uh, the, the, the 12 disciples were chosen and they have sort of special powers that the, the, the rest of us just do not. Uh, and, and different prophets were chosen as well. So in this domain of proximity to God, um, it is highly unequal. And I think it speaks to uh, the uh, extent to which equality is believed in today, that people have this uh, reaction, either the people handing out the lavender or people hearing about the prophecy, that, you know, wh wh why isn't this happening to me, right? And, and I think, so with equality, uh, desire is able to traffic more readily among people because, you know, if I'm a, uh, untouchable and I see a Brahmin, uh, you know, get, get a certain type of thing or, I may reason, you know, we are of different stock, right? I'm not saying this is how all castes. You're giving an example, work, but of course. Yeah, yeah. but 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 uh, I think it's not uncommon for people to reason that, you know, hmm. uh, you know, this is just we are different in stock, and what, what is, you know, what, what is good for him is not good for me. Um, but now, since we are fundamentally equal, even from God, you know, we we demand a sort of equality. You know, what, why are you giving him prophecies and and not me? 
yeah, so, so I hope I answered your question there. Very helpful. Um, talk to me about competition. When there is equality of desire, so to speak, competition is inevitable. But talk to me uh, in greater detail about how Girard became more popular in the business world, in the tech world, and what does uh, competition really mean to Girard? Yeah, so th these are slightly different questions, um, but I'll answer, I think, the more interesting one first about why I think Gerard became popular in the, in the tech and business world. Uh, and the uninteresting and I think overstated answer is Peter, right? Hmm. And uh, I think it's really interesting because almost any other theory uh, and you say, dude, you're just reading this because of X or Y or Z, right? There's actually no value in the theory itself is a stark a condemnation, right? It's a sort of attack on that theory. However, it doesn't so work so well in mimetic theory because that's what mimetic theory states. Right? <laughs> Either there is value in the theory, or there's no value in the theory, but you know people think that there's value because a, a, a very uh, you know, prestigious model thinks that there's value. But that's exactly <clears throat> what the what the theory states, right? So so I, I don't I don't see that as a jab of mimetic theory. Um, Rather, but uh, but rather as a almost like a, a confirmation, um, and and let me uh, just go off that point. I, I don't think we should feel so uncomfortable admitting uh, the origins of, of our desires because these two strands of physical and metaphysical desire they can change and adjust. Right? There, there was a very famous philosopher, I think I can't remember who, um, who got into uh, I think uh, philosophy because a girl he was attracted to said, I think you would do well if you read a few more philosophy books. And if you said, I think you'd do well by wearing cowboy boots and taming wild, wild stallions, I think you might've gone to do that. However, as we, of course, as you know, the reason we enter into a domain can be quite different from the reason we, we stick to and eventually fall in love with a domain. And that is a, like one answer. And I think that's, a, that's definitely right. But I think it's a bit overdone. Um, I think there's something deep and important uh, in, in mimetic theory that actually speaks uh, to people in tech, especially founders. Uh, and I think what that is, is uh, founders today, I think, are the people who are the most uh, prideful, uh, and this is going to be a bit loaded, uh, but like, almost delusional, uh, delusional people. And in some sense, that's not an uh, attack against them, but it, it's, a, uh, it, it's necessary for the type of activity they do, right? They're, they're really they're literally uh, in the act of genesis and, and going from zero to 100 and many times wanting to create these world historic companies. Uh, and I think one must be in some sense uh, deluded. Uh, and by that, I mean rejecting evidence in the moments that points to the contrary. Uh, and in fact, one of my favorite essays by Nietzsche, uh, the uses and abuses of history for life articulates this concept extremely well, that action is actually uh, in tension with truth uh, and, and knowledge. Mm. And, and I think what, what people in tech, especially founders, who obviously are, are the ones that Gerard is most popular with, really uh, are deluded about are really two things. First is their likelihood of success. Uh, second is the importance of their enterprise for the world. And third is how happy their enterprise will make them. And I think when you're uh, deluded on all three of these angles, you, you put a, a superhuman sort of effort into the enterprise you're, you're building. Uh, and, and, and sometimes that, that leads to great success. And so 
if that is the psychology of, of founders, and you know, I'm super simplistic here in the, in the two seconds that I have, um, I, I would say that Gerard really speaks to this group uh, because he's really giving a psychology of delusion and pride of how we can sustain uh, essentially the belief in lies. Hmm. Um, and you know, one way that I, I like to describe mimetic theory and how it understands humanity is uh, from an evolutionary angle. Gerard's provocative understanding is that the vector of growth from ape to man is not a, primarily a development of reason, but it's of mimesis. And so what defines humanity is not the ability to grasp for truth, but the ability to believe in lies insofar as we look around and see other people do as well. Right? Mm. And, and, and I think this ability to delude ourselves, to, to believe in fictions has served, served us very, very well. Um, you know, one uh, question that people always have is, you know, how, does, how, how did Homo sapien win against Neanderthal and, uh, and Homo erectus? Uh, and one answer is that, you know, Neanderthal and erectus were more, more sober. Uh, and as a result, they couldn't uh, organize above a, a certain sort of threshold. I, I wouldn't, I don't know if Dunbar's number applies to them, but something like that. Whereas humanity can create fictions and myths. Um, and as a result, they can organize on a mass scale. And I think this is, everyone would agree with this. Uh, if we look at gods that no one really takes seriously anymore, like the gods of Egypt, right? Clearly that was a civilizational, uh, uh, civilizational organizing set of ideas that were just complete lies, but they nonetheless had very practical effects. Anyways, I'm jumping too far ahead, but my, my point is the reason I think it's so popular in tech uh, is, is because Gerard gives a psychology of pride, of, of delusion, of, of how we can sustain uh, the type of ideas that I think are necessary for world historic activity, unfortunately, or fortunately. Um, and that is why I think when people get into Gerard uh, after through the, you know, the model of Teal, um, they, they, they stick with him because it really speaks to that specific type of person. The number of entrepreneurs and VCs who are studying philosophy is, or who have studied philosophy is astonishing. Reid Hoffman studied philosophy at Oxford. Peter Thiel, of course, talks about it. And now there are long Twitter threads about it. It's gaining this sort of popularity because I think people are also looking for an organizing principle to understand delusion or to figure out like what's going on. And I think Girardian lens really helps. But uh, what got me thinking when you were talking was uh, how did you actually study this complex uh, philosopher who you didn't really have exposure to? Earlier, you talked about how to read. So do you want to tell us a bit more about how you read Girard? Yeah, and uh, coming from a math background, I essentially treated, uh, treat rather all the philosophers as I do when I'm trying to learn a, a new a theorem or a proof, which is reconstruction. Um, and so whenever I read, uh, I write a lot. I write a great deal. In fact, I, I wrote a, a, an essay about this called the Fractal Summary Method. It's, it's on my website if people are interested. And so after every paragraph, I would read it and I would uh, summarize this and type out the, in one sentence or, or two sentences what the paragraph was, was trying to say. Uh, and so in, in my sort of notebook, uh, digital notebook, hmm. of course, and what you end up with is essentially the entire book copied on your notebook with your own commentary and sort of one line summaries for, for every like, you know, few, few paragraphs. 
And then what you do from there is you try to reconstruct the, the entire argument in, in, a, in a distilled form. Uh, and so with that sort of uh, method, uh, I, I essentially, I just got my hands on all of Gerard's books and, and, I, and I read through all of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's not much more to say other than that, other than I had very good friends who were interested in this. So, so that definitely made the, the journey uh, much more enjoyable. And I wouldn't have even have the desire to partake on this if I didn't have good friends around me. So that, that's definitely the necessary and primary component. Hearing you talk would uh, make a gentleman called Tiago Forte very happy. He's uh, yes, written yes. a book called uh, Building a Second Brain, where he talks about taking notes and really synthesizing, among other things. Um, so he'd be delighted, I'm sure. Yes, I'm um, actually just listening to his, uh, to his audio book right now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about uh, your partnership with David Perel. What are you both trying to accomplish through your uh, lectures on Girard and how did it come into being? How have you structured it? Yeah, uh, so I can't, I can't really speak for David. Um, he, said he has some very exciting stuff going on uh, in, in, in his life. Uh, his, uh, so David is a good friend of mine. We met in New York in the philosophy reading group. He is, uh, he's been building a very successful writing uh, sort of business um, called the Rite of Passage. Uh, and he, he, right now he's taking that to the next stratospheric level. Uh, and. I don't know how much of it is public or, or private, so that, that's, that's all that I'll say. Um, and you know, we actually lived together in the same building in Austin. While well, I was still in Austin, now I'm in New York. And we were, you know, we, we had like reading groups every other week. And one thing that I'm really interested in is okay. Let, let me take a few steps back. Steps back. So remember when, when I said I liked contemplation too much to make it out of a career. I, mm -hmm. I think I still plan on returning to the academy. Um, obviously, you know, this is quite a bit far down the line given, given that I, I, I've, I'm on the track of trying to build a company here. Um, but one day I, I do want to return. And when I, want to, when I return, I think I want to have the same type of freedom that I had as an undergrad. And I think the way to accomplish that is to have, of course, economic resources, right? So you're not beholden to the academy. You don't, you don't have to find a job there if you don't need to. But I think what's almost even more important is to have the social recognitive uh, uh, sort of bank account uh, as well. Hmm. And, and this also comes from a Girardian understanding of human nature, uh, but even probably more so uh, a Hegelian understanding or Rousseauian understanding of human nature, that we really need social support, that this phrase, you know, just don't stop caring what other people think really is misguided. That's like telling people just to stop breathing. Um, because yeah. just as much as air and food and shelter are necessary goods for not even human flourishing, but for just for a, a regular life, um, so is recognition and, and social support. And so one way to look at these lectures is me trying to uh, establish myself in, in some sense uh, outside of the academy and trying to find a way um, uh, to, 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 to do that. Uh, you know, one, one challenge that I have is, you know, if, if you read my manuscript, I think it's completely uh, unreadable, or at least it's very uninteresting for the average reader, is I think there's a, some kind of an efficient frontier, if you will, between the sophistication of work, um, as well as its accessibility. Uh, and, and I'm not really interested in, in writing uh, public essays at all or, or to a popular audience, but obviously, um, I am... I, I, 
you know, I need to find a way to connect to a broader audience because that's how you gain social support. Hmm. And so I, I've been thinking about a lot about how to bridge that, gear, that gap, right? To still write the most sophisticated uh, and wrestle with ideas in the most sophisticated ways that, that I want to, but still reach a broader audience. And I think I've come up with two really stra two strategies. One is literature um, and the other is the audio lecture format. Um, maybe right. we can talk about literature later, but the reason that I think the lecture audio format is a good way to, to sort of bridge this frontier, if you will, um, actually came from me just dying for intellectual content after graduating uh, and, and stumbling upon this series called The Great Courses Plus, where they take mm. essentially world-class professors and make them do lecture series. So we imitated our entire lecture series off of, off of that. And yeah, so-, so it, That's good mimesis. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And of course, there's, there's, uh, of course, there's, there's good mimesis because uh, Gerard would say that, you know, mimesis interpenetrates everything that we do. So, you know, if there's no good mimesis, then there's no good anything. So if there's good anything, then there must be good mimesis. So, 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 so yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. So you, uh, you're doing that, uh, you're establishing yourself in, you know, outside the realm of say technology or investing or building. And uh, I do think that this is a broader trend that's emerging where, uh, as Walt Whitman said, we are multitudes. We're not just one thing. And I think in many cultures, there's this obsession to be that one person, like one, I, like one identity that you go with. And I think that in the times to come, people will build like a portfolio of careers, a bit of uh, what you have done. But for me, the one thing that jumps out about you is that you, you're not shy to experiment. You're not shy to try out a few things and you're open to failure. Do you want to tell me about like, what does an average day in your life look like today as a, as a builder, investor, uh, public lecturer? How do you balance energy and time? Yeah, so uh, I'm very uh, stringent with my, uh, with my schedule. And I have probably 10 people that I see, or I, I have two people, three people that I see on a recurring basis and about like 20 acquaintances, uh, friends really, uh, that, 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 that I see one-on-one, -on -one, I would say like once every week, uh, I'm sorry, once every month. Um, and beyond that, I don't socialize at all. You know, so I'm not going to any parties at, at a big party phase back in college, but you know, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's it for now. And I don't spend any time doing anything uh, that, 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 that I think is, you know, is uninteresting. So I, I uh, and so my day-to-day -day looks like six to seven days a week. I'm usually working like six to seven days a week on the company. Uh, and that's usually the 8 a.m. get up, you work out, and then you work until, uh, you know, like maybe six, seven uh, and then I essentially I, I read philosophy uh, afterwards. And then I have uh, tutors who are my ex-professors who, who I'm still reading with. Uh, and then, you know, the, the day that I do take off or the half day that I do take off, uh, I just spend all that time to read philosophy. So it's a very uh, monastic existence. And that is a, a, that's actually an insight from, I think, David Graeber, that we tend to think mm. of people in capital as, you know, these uh, uh, hedonists. Um, and merchants uh, as these hedonists, but no, uh, sort of uh, capital really is quite a monastic uh, endeavor. And so is philosophy. So we're two, two quite monastic endeavors. Yeah. 
I'd love for you to build on that because um, we did like a book discussion on bullshit jobs, the book that he wrote uh, while oh, he was still alive. Yeah. Um, tell me about capital and philosophy being monastic endeavors. How did you how did you realize this uh, beyond your own life? Um, so I think philosophy is, is much easier. There's almost the causality. I think it extends both ways where I think being, being alienated helps with, with, uh, with philosophy. I think there's little wonder mm. that the, the person who understand America, perhaps the best was a, was an mm. outsider, right? Tocqueville. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think, you know, obviously you can't be completely not knowledgeable about a certain domain, but you, you also don't want to be fully immersed or only immersed there. You know, one, one thing I really like uh, a definition of you know, reason and what is the core faculty of reason um, goes something like this, that reason is the ability to step outside our immediate normative uh, frame, right? So, so dogs, cats, uh, it's not crazy for me to think that they can't step out of their current normative frame. They, they can't think, you know, what would, you know, a, a cat with, what, what would that mice feel if, if I ate it? Or, you know, how, how would its, you know, children think, um, you know, and it just sees mice and thinks, you know, yummy. But what makes us humans, and I think this is uh, quite an interesting definition of reason, is our ability to stand out of that normative frame. And, you know, if uh, reason is what powers philosophy, then you, you need to be, I think, somewhat alienated, um, but deeply understand the current normative frame to, to, really, uh, to, to really understand it. Um, so I think that's one way that the causality flows, right? That alienation helps with philosophy. But I, I also do think that philosophy sort of also uh, alienates you. Uh, this is highly contentious because some, some, some entire philosophies, its end is to unalienate you like Hegel. But I, I, I do tend to think that a lot, a lot of philosophy sort of uh, alienates you. And, and um, I think another strand here is that what I said before about this connection with uh, delusion and action and worldly activity. I think philosophy tends to shine a light on, on those delusions so that you can't sustain them anymore. And so I think you become a bit more disillusioned with, with, with the world and what people are trying to achieve uh, in it. Um, and I think, so I think all of those add, add up to a sort of monasticism, a natural alliance between monasticism and philosophy. Um, on, the, on the capital side, I think that's a bit harder and it's a bit harder because I think there's a bit less of a synergy. Um, but yeah, this is just a, almost an uninteresting empirical argument uh, that the most successful capitalists, you know, they don't live these like hedonistic lifestyles of, of the kings of, of yore, but they're extremely disciplined uh, and rigorous. And I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, um, but yeah, that's just an empirical, uh, empirical observation. Fascinating. Now, talk to me a bit about your uh, your uh, your company that you're building. How did the idea? What's the core insight behind it? And uh, if you are widely successful in whatever you're trying to do with philosophy and business, what would life look like, say, a decade from now? That's a good question. So, um, what we're doing here is we're trying to democratize alternative assets. And so, by alternatives, right now we mean the different private funds, right? Uh, so VC funds, private equity funds, uh, private real estate, private credit, uh, natural, real, uh, natural resources and infrastructure. And so what we do is um, we uh, use our own balance sheet, so it's aligned, to invest in the top fund managers uh, of the world. We hold that 
and we sort of sell it off to RAs and our and clients uh, through software. Um, and so, a lot of wealth managers uh, they they want to get into private private funds, um, but uh, you know there's a lot of operational complexities. There's obviously access is very difficult, especially for the top quartile funds that we're targeting, and also due diligence and having a good a way to diligence is very difficult. And so it. You know, it might make sense for a Harvard and Yale endowment to have their own internal teams to invest in private equity and, and, and you know, private credit, uh, but it, it probably doesn't make sense for an RA firm. So, so we act uh, as that fiduciary for them, and we build an end-to-end -end, uh, software uh, suite, essentially, um, that goes all the way from telling you how to do portfolio construction all the way to, you know, transaction and eventually reporting. And uh, to answer your second question, what I would be doing... Um, Oh, what would life look like? You know, if yeah, you really, like, oh, you're yeah, a mission driven person. Um, I, I know that you're not doing perhaps just to get rich or prove a point or, you know, show off. I know that there must be a guiding philosophy. So I'm interested in what does your vision look like a decade from now if if you succeed widely? Yeah. Um, this, this is probably going to disappoint you, but for this company that, I, that, that I'm building right now, it's mostly is for the economic gain, I, I would say. Um, and the reason there is, right, I didn't grow up very rich and I need to establish myself. And, you know, mm. Elon didn't build SpaceX and Tesla immediately, right? He, he had to establish <laughs> himself. Now, I, I happen to think that what we're doing is quite important for the economy and also a very, very interesting domain. Um, but I would be lying to you if I didn't say that money is the primary, if not one of the primary, if not the primary, uh, and that, that I'm doing this. Um, I, I think what my, like, ideal life would look like is one that is almost exclusively contemplation. Um, mm. But the contemplation can take many different forms. That could be philosophy. Um, I probably don't want to spend all of my time, like six days, seven days a week doing philosophy. I probably want to be connected to the world in, in some way. And I think the most, the best ways that I can add value are uh, either through, uh, through an investment role or through a, an, an advisory role. And so I expect what my life to look like is I have you know, complete freedom to move around the world. Most of the time I'm reading and writing philosophy. Um, and, then, and then I'm acting as a, a cupbearer or an advisor uh, to sort of to, to, to people in the world. Um, but yeah, who knows? These, uh, if you asked me the same question just two years ago or even one year ago, I probably would have a very different answer. So I think uh, we also need to keep in mind that we change quite, quite a bit as individuals. And we underestimate the change. No, I was just uh, trying to figure out uh, what your curiosity would be. So you want to be a philosopher king, yes or no? And what does being a philosopher king mean to you, if anything? Uh, well, I, I think there's a question that you, we have to ask even before, do you want to be a philosopher king, is can anyone be a philosopher king, right? Hmm. And, um, can anyone, yeah. Can anyone, yeah. Are, are those two ideas just in, in so fundamental uh, tension that it's just impossible? And recall... Um, Plato himself, uh, even though he clearly believed that this could be done, believes that it's highly, highly unlikely. Um, and, and one thing that he says, I think this is way too uh, charitable to philosophers, is that um, if you have the uh, a tenacity, uh, or, or sorry, not tenacity, if you have the abilities uh, to do philosophy, uh, and you also are, are somewhat engaged in the world, people will, will pull you away from philosophy uh, and, and just make you just, just a king. Um, and this is why, actually, and people often overlook this, in Plato's training of the philosopher kings, you know, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, you know, you, you probably think that you have to be trained in, right? Like you'd be smart and you know, good family and, 
you know, uh, you have to be trained in mathematics, right? That's a very key one from an early age. But there's a, a requir there's a requirement that most people overlook, and that's alienation. Um, Plato mm -hmm. believes that in the training of philosophers, you need to be alienated from the world. And he gives examples of uh, you know, Socrates, uh, who, who had a, a daemon, I think that, that, that made him uh, unpalatable to a lot of the Athenian uh, political class. Um, he gave examples of a cripple who couldn't fight in wars, people who's alienated by their societies. And the reason this is, is because that exact example I gave you is that if you don't have a forcing function that keeps you away from the world, the fruits of philosophy, while they are much greater, are much less apparent and, and much less rewarding, I think, in the short run than being in the world. And we've already discussed how this manifested in, in, a, in a slight degree in my own life, where my lack of having a visa, right, this fundamental prohibition, actually mm -hmm. worked greatly in my favor. But I, I knew that I had to finish my degree. And so I, I, I had the uh, license to pursue philosophy. And I think it's little surprise that, that if you look back in history, that the people who, uh, you know, uh, the people who ha had a worldly active tendency, but also ended up being uh, world historic philosophers, uh, wrote their most important works of philosophy uh, in exile, right? Whether this is Boethius writing the Constellation of Philosophy uh, immediately before his death, whether this is Confucius, right? Roaming around and not finding employment mm. in, the, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in the warring states uh, period, um, or someone like Machiavelli, right? Who obviously uh, wrote The Prince, uh, perhaps out of resentment, uh, when, when he was in uh, when he was in exile, and and so, I think we, we need to ask that question. And this is a this is a uh, essay that I'm working on now. It's called uh, "Until Philosophers Are Kings." Fundamentally, is there a tension uh, between the two, between the, these two archetypes? Um, and and I, I, I would say like a, a lot of things have to happen that are out of my control or out of one's control for one to end up in that spot. Um, in fact, if you recall in Plato, um, the philosopher is the best uh, you know, person to be, which implies that the philosopher king is actually one step below. And you literally have to drag the philosopher down uh, to become a, a philosopher king. It's actually, in some sense, it's worse for, for, for them in some limited sense. Uh, and, and this is actually what happened to uh, a philosopher king, right, St. Augustine. Um, Augustine was very tracked in the world. He was very, uh, you know, we, we can say he was in an accelerated career, right? Uh, he, he came from a rural town and then he, he went to Carthage, like the New York or London of today. And he actually rejected the world altogether and, and he alienated himself. Um, and his famous conversion to, to God, he also described as a conversion to philosophy. And so he just uh, went into some shed somewhere, or, you know, not shed because he was, he was a bit more well off than that. But he went to a farm with some of his friends and he read, and when he traveled to Hippo, and the reason that we know him as the Bishop of Hippo is because uh, the people in Hippo uh, literally kidnapped him on the spot and forced him to be a bishop, right? Which, you know, at, at that time, uh, bishops had a, a quite a political function as well as his judge. And so maybe to answer your question, I, I'm actually quite content with just, um, you know, after I established myself in the world, um, to, to sort of leave the world and just do philosophy with my friends on a farm somewhere. I'm quite content doing that. Uh, so I, I, I don't think I have any ambitions to be a philosopher king, but it would have to be forced. Someone would have to force me, I, I think. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think anyone thinks highly of me enough to force me to do that. So I think the coast is clear. 
somebody once said, be a king, then be a philosopher. Um, and yeah, maybe there's some merit in that. Maybe neither, but it's it's worth exploring. Yes, in fact, actually, Plato actually recommended the philosopher king. Uh, he recommended that uh, men do not practice practice philosophy before the age of 30, and that they should get real-world experience. Uh, because young minds, are, I think he thinks, are too easily seduced by, uh, you know, nice-sounding ideas. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, I need to go back to the Republic to see if this is true, but in some sense, combining all of this, maybe it's, you know, you first you're king and establish yourself in the world, then you become a philosopher. Uh, and if you're a true philosopher, you don't really have any desires to be a king. So the only way is that people end up being philosopher kings if they're forced and pulled back into the world. Forced to go back, yeah. Um, I just uh, uh, want to conclude this discussion on uh, how does Girardian philosophy apply to stuff beyond careers? Um, say, the Sino-American relationship. I know Girard had a point of view there. You obviously have some exposure, having lived in multiple country, countries, having friends from around the world. Same on network capital. We operate in 112 countries now, and our community members come from all walks of life, all religions. Uh, maybe you could tell us from the Girardian lens about the Sino-American Sino relationship. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think maybe you're asking two questions here, right? How does Girardian psychology apply to, uh, you know, maybe geopolitical or larger historical events? Yeah. And how does, uh, how does it specifically tie into to Sino-American relation? Right. So uh, I'll cover the first one first. Um, this core insight that we are, uh, we desire objects often not for the objects themselves, but for their associations and their relationships, right? The, the mediations, if you will, around the object. That is not just a personal, individual, psychological insight, um, but that is supposed to be, uh, an, an, or rather, the, 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 the ramifications of that is not just in, you know, for example, choosing careers or choosing partners. Uh, hmm. Gerard, in fact, thinks it has world historic and, in fact, uh, apocalyptic conclusions, but, but we're, we're not going to go there today. That's a bit far, and if people are interested, <laughs> they're more than welcome to, to watch the lecture series that are live on YouTube. Um, However, one, Gerard invites us to look at the relationship between national identities, uh, national egos, uh, under the sort of same lens as sort of individual egos. In fact, there's a great book called Psychopolitics that it, it actually attempts to do exactly just this, uh, tries to examine uh, uh, sort of international relations, not as uh, countries as these rational utility maximizing entities, but as fundamentally spirited uh, and social uh, and mimetic entities. And so to give you an example of the predictive power of this analysis, we can turn to the Sino-American relations. So if people recall in the 2000s and certainly in the 90s, the dominant view of China's economic liberalization, right, was that it was gonna make everyone a lot better. The Chinese would be happier uh, to have more goods and, and so will, importantly, the West. They'll be happier with China's rise uh, because they'll, they'll get cheaper goods essentially. Uh, in, the, in the process. And obviously, uh, this is a simplification, but this is one of the dominant sort of uh, reasons for supporting China's economic liberalization. And Gerard, uh, in, the, in the height of uh, Sino-American optimism in 2007, right, this is right before 2008, uh, this is China's big, you know, opening in the world stage moment, um, Gerard said, no, not so fast. We are not fundamentally creatures who are interested in just getting more, an absolutely more amount of goods, right, which is homo economicus, uh, but we're often much more concerned with relativistic social standing. And so 
China becoming richer and closer to the United States could make them a bit more envious because they're more similar and they're more equal to the states. And so they, they're going to start desiring what the people in the states are desiring, right? And as we discussed, envy is a, a sentiment that traffics much more, sim, uh, much more freely amongst equals. And similarly, the Americans are not going to be, uh, or they're not going to focus on the absolute increase in, in goods and, and be joyful of that. However, they're going to be unsettled by the uh, sort of uh, decrease in, dis in relativistic distance. And Gerard's insight on both accounts, both on China and America, is that as humans, we care much less about, about uh, the absolute amount of goods uh, than our sort of relativistic social standing. And so he actually predicted, and, and this is a, you know, a crazy, I don't know if it's a crazy prediction, but it's quite out there at the time um, that- People uh, were you, shocked. People he, thought he was, he was not making sense in yeah, 2007, I think, yeah. Yeah, and um, he said, you know, there's gonna be a coming clash, first of all, uh, between China and America. This coming clash has nothing to do with the, the clash of civilizations, right? Communism versus capitalism, Confucianism versus uh, you know, liberty or what, what have you. Um, but it's between two capitalistic systems that are becoming too, too damn similar, right? And for, if you were, you were to look at the world today from an alien, what is the country that's most similar to America? It would have to be China, I would say, right? A sort of a technological, materialistic GDP per capita. Who, no. who, who, yeah. who, who's interested in, in the education of their children, uh, who, who has this long historical uh, sentiment, right? It, it would be the most similar, uh, in many important degrees at least, uh, country. And- uh, Sorry, GDP, uh, not GDP per capita. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and um, Gerard's insight therefore is, uh, he actually said that, uh, you know, given that war is, is, is uh, no longer fought in conventional means these days, and that's another topic we'll have to talk another time, um, that uh, the conflict will come in, in the form of a trade war. And from that mm. perspective, we can expect a trade war between China and America in the coming decades. Of course, lo and behold, we're, we're still in the aftermath of that, of that trade war that was started, I think, in around 2019, 2020. And so that, that goes to show the, the, the problem with um, conceiving of humans as these rational creatures uh, from this you know, enlightenment or uh, perhaps like homo economicus perspective and, and, and the uh, terrible consequences uh, or, or maybe not terrible consequences, but what we could be missing, right? What, what we could uh, overlook uh, when, when, we, when we treat humans as these like rational creatures who are able to make up their own minds, who are, who are you know, maximizing some kind of utility instead of these social creatures uh, who are, you know, after this relativistic social standing. Fascinating. And uh, Gerard was right in a lot of ways. What we see today is, um, is that because of how similar China and America are in, are in many respects, how uh, similar aspirations that exist in technology in terms of you know, holding power in the world, Gerard's mimesis or the mimetic theory proves to be an important way to understand the world. And I think that what you've done really well today, Jonathan, and through your larger body of work is that you've helped us look at careers, relationships, geopolitics, stuff that millennials and Gen Zs care a lot about, help us with mental models and frameworks from a Gen Z's lens, which to me is the essence of what network capital is. And, you know, friends like you make it happen for us. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't or any? Anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, 
maybe just a little shameless uh, self-promotion here. You know, if, if any of this is interesting to you, you know, feel free to, to, to watch the, uh, please include in the show notes, uh, linked maybe to the first lecture. That'll be the most gentle introduction. But um, other than that, I think we covered uh, a lot of ground in the, in the little time we had today. So uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I don't think it's a shameless plug at all. Um, I say that Lux Surface Area is doing great things and telling lots of people. So we, of course, include that in the show notes, but also send out uh, your lectures, your writing, and this podcast to our entire uh, newsletter. Please. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.